All right, as you grab a seat tonight, I want to invite you to grab a Bible uh, and turn to 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3, for those of you in the room, uh, use a hard copy Bible or, or your phone or whatever you want to. For those of you online, uh, I want to welcome you and ask you to do the same. Uh, you can join us tonight as we work through 1 Peter chapter 3. Uh, we've been doing a teaching series, if you've not been with us, uh, through this New Testament letter, this epistle, this, this letter that a guy named Peter, uh, who was one of the first Christians, one of the first followers of Jesus, wrote um, to a church, uh, and basically instructing them on how to follow Jesus, how to live and love like him. Uh, and so as we jump into this tonight, I want to tell you a story that will seem completely unrelated, um, and that is uh, that this week, um, my wife and I live, live in a home in Thousand Oaks, and, and we bought it a number of years ago, um, and we love our home. Like, we love our house, we love our home, we love where we get to live. But then earlier this week, um, four houses down from us, one of the homes on the street went on the market. And I noticed it and just went like, all right, cool, that house is selling, we'll see if we can meet the new neighbors, right? I noticed that. And then I catch my wife the other night looking at it on Zillow. And I was like, excuse you? Like, we love our home, why are you? She's like, oh, I don't want to move there. I just want to look at it. I was like, you want to look at it? But you don't want to move in there? Why are, you, why, why are you doing this? But this is what she does. She goes on Realtor.com. She goes on Zillow. And she looks at houses that she has absolutely no intention of buying, of us looking at, of us actually moving into. And here's the question I want to ask tonight to this room. I want to see if anyone in this room is like my wife. I want to ask this by show of hands, and we're just going to be honest in church tonight, whether you can afford such a house or not, who here has ever, let's say in the last uh, six months, in the last six months, looked online at houses uh, that you could potentially buy. All right, this is like the brokest room in Calvary, and we are looking at houses, and that is fantastic. Like, I love it. You're like, I don't have anything. A down payment seems laughable. You're like, 20%? <laughs> I couldn't buy the house at that cost, right? And so you have no idea, but, but here's what you do. You go on Zillow or you go on Realtor, you go on these apps or you go on these websites and you look at houses. And here's the reason you're doing that. Because though you may be broke right now, the great hope that you hold to somewhere in your heart is that someday you will be a little less broke, um, a little more able to do this. And the great hope is that someday, even with California real estate prices, uh, you might win the lottery, uh, <laughs> and be able uh, to buy a house. And, and, and here's why, actually, you looking at a house, and, and my wife looking at houses, even though we have one, um, is not silly. It's meaningful. Here, here's the principle that'll kind of guide us through tonight. It's this. It's that it's easier to find what you want when you know what you're looking for. It is easier to find what you want when you know what you're looking for. This is true about houses, but it's basically true about everything else in life. Like anything that's meaningful to you, anything you want in this life, anything you're trying to get after, it's easier to find what you want when you know what you're looking for. This is true with houses. It's true with cars. Like if you're in the market for a truck and you want it to be a blue truck and you know the make and model, you'll start seeing that everywhere, right? Because it's easier to find what you want when you know what you're looking for. It's true when you walk into the grocery store. If you walk into the grocery store not really sure what you want, you just know you're kind of hungry, you will wander aimlessly. But if you walk into the grocery store knowing that you are looking for Captain Crunch with Crunch Berries, you will know exactly what it is when you see it. Your eyes will be drawn to it. This is like an amazing thing about human beings. When you are walking through and you're not sure what you want, your eyes just go all over the place. But when you know that you don't just want Captain Crunch, but you want Captain Crunch with Crunch Berries, you will immediately see the captain in his yellow box with his blue Crunch Berries. You will see that immediately and your eyes will be drawn to it. Why? Because it's easier to get what you want, to find what you want, when you know what you're looking for. And tonight... This is going to be the guiding principle of our sermon. The guiding principle of our sermon is that it will be easier for you in your life to know, to, to find what you want when you know exactly what you're looking for. Because tonight, when we continue through 1 Peter, we're going to get to a section in the first part of chapter 3 that is going to lead us to a discussion about marriage. 
So we're going to talk about marriage tonight. We're going to talk about your romance life. We're going to talk about dating. We're going to talk about all of this tonight. And you might be tempted initially to be like, Brian, this is, inter- <laughs> someone's excited, but someone's, <laughs> someone's like, I'm single, I'm here, right? But this is the great thing. Like you might be tempted to blow this off and be like, these verses don't apply to me because I'm not married. And there's some way in which that's true, right? If I was preaching this sermon to like that room over there on a Sunday morning, it's a bunch of married folks. But what I've learned in here um, is that this is the unofficial singles ministry of Calvary, right? Uh, that's, what, that's what we are. It's awesome. And, and when you're like, I'm dating someone, you're still single till you're married, right? Uh, Until you're actually husband, wife, like you're still not fully in that union. And so this is like, that's this room. And I understand that. And I get that. And I think it's a beautiful thing. And so here's what I've been convinced of over the years. I actually think teaching about marriage in here is essential because, because it's easier to find what you want if you know exactly what you're looking for. And so our intention tonight is simply to answer this question. Maybe all of you can answer it for yourself. You don't owe me an answer, but you owe you an answer. Do you know what you're looking for? In a spouse, do you know what you're looking for? Tonight, what we're going to look at in 1 Peter is the way Peter describes marriage. And he's going to spend about half of the time, um, half of our time tonight, we're going to talk to the ladies. And we're going to talk to you about what you're looking for. And then, fellas, you're up next. We're going to talk to you about what you're looking for in a wife. Women, what you're looking for in a husband. And my question for you tonight is, do you know what you're looking for? Or do you just have this vague sense that someday you'll just be walking down the street and the meet cute that happens in the movies will happen and you like bump into each other and you'll have to get like the other person's thing dry cleaned and they'll leave their number and like there's some like crazy story or have you actually just identified here's the type of person that I believe I'm called to marry. See, it's easier to find what you want if you know what you're looking for. And tonight in 1 Peter, 1 Peter is going to talk to husbands He's going to talk to wives, and he's going to tell them what marriage looks like. And so what we want to do a little bit tonight is go like, if this is what marriage is supposed to look like, let's back out of it to try to figure out what type of person um, that I am looking for. And so uh, we're going to go two different directions tonight. Like I said, we're going to talk to the ladies first. So ladies, uh, you're up. Uh, And then I'm going to talk to the gentlemen in here and talk about the kind of woman, the kind of wife that you are looking for. Um, Tonight, um, I'm going to give you five things to look for. Um, And let me tell you, these are not the only five things there are. There are probably more five things. I'm just doing the five things I see in the text tonight for each of you. So that's where we're going with this. And here's why this matters. Um, Because I think the problem, uh, ladies and gentlemen, I think the problem for some of you is some of you don't have five things you're looking for. You have 105 things you're looking for, right? And so you have this perfectly dialed in individual, uh, ladies, who's like six foot one, uh, blue eyes, you'll settle for brown eyes, right? You know his hair color, you know his profession, you know he likes cats. Uh, No, no, he doesn't like cats, he likes puppies, and he wants 4.2 children. Like, you know exactly everything about him. You know how much money he makes, you know what he likes to do. You know what shows he likes. He happens to like all the same shows you like, right? And, and, and what you've done is you've created this guy who actually doesn't exist. He's impossible to find because you have so many criteria that it's actually impossible. And then the flip side is true, again, for ladies and gentlemen, for some of you in this room, some of you have no criteria. Your only criteria is he or she is into me, done. Well, let's get married, right? And so like you actually don't have criteria. Your only criteria is do I feel good about it on the inside? which is actually an incredibly dangerous criteria. If the only criteria for do you want to marry and spend the rest of your life with this person is, does it feel good when I'm in my 20s, is a terrible criteria. So tonight, what I'm going to give you is not the only five things to look for, but they are five things that the scriptures teach are going to be critical to marriage. And therefore, five things that I think are worth your time tonight. So ladies, we're going to start with you. And here's the one we're going to say for both of you tonight. This is just true for the entire text. Number one, look for a man who loves Jesus more than he loves you. Look for a man who loves Jesus more than he loves you. We'll talk about what that means, but um, 
One of the greatest pains that I walk with people through, um, even recently I was meeting with a person um, who's older in life and they've been married for decades. And, and years ago when they were a teenager, they met this guy and they were so certain that this person was a Christian, but they were so certain because they had convinced themselves that he was a Christian. They were so certain because they wanted to believe he was a Christian. And so like speaking with this individual, it was like, wow, like it, it, the, the, the amount of pain I went through, like if I could talk to some of these people in their 20s, I would just tell them, like finding a man who really loves the Lord more than he loves me, my, finding a man whose entire life is oriented toward Jesus, that's just like this non-negotiable. You'll see here like verses three, one, or chapter three, one through seven. It's like this entire thing tonight really only works if you decide to marry a man who loves Jesus more than you. And that's so significant for us tonight because, listen, um, I know how difficult it can be um, when you are a young woman and, and a man falls in love with you and he falls head over heels for you and he thinks you're beautiful and he affirms you and he builds you up and you feel wanted and pursued and desired, but then you look at him and you know in your heart of hearts that he doesn't share the same faith you do. And yet one of the things the scriptures is going to teach clearly is that the most healthy, vibrant, thriving marriages are going to happen when it's two people who are walking in the same direction, who have the same Lord, who have the same master, who are following the same Jesus. And so what we try to say all the time in here is that we believe that scriptures are going to unapologetically tell you to marry someone who shares your faith, to marry someone who shares your direction. I've said it this way before, that it is impossible for you to be on the same page if you're not even reading out of the same book. It's impossible for you to be on the same page as a married couple. You can't be on the same page if you're not reading the same book. And if you meet someone, and however wonderful or good or moral they are, I'm telling you, one of the most significant things you can do is make sure they love Jesus more than they love you. Let's get to the second one here. We're going to start in the scriptures in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 1. It says these words. It says, wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands. Now, I know some of you are like, ooh, marriage relationship series. Then you hear this first, you're like, check, please, right? Like, it's just like the temperature goes up in the room because we read this, and this just feels so wildly out of step with 2023. And I just want to say that out loud with you. If you are like a person living in the United States of America in 2023, this verse seems like a thousand years old, and we shouldn't even celebrate it. And yet, here's what I want to do. I want to teach on this verse probably a little longer than I'll teach on the rest of these verses so that you can understand what the scriptures mean and what they don't mean. And, th and then here's what I want you to do with that tonight. Ladies and gentlemen, whenever you encounter a scripture that bothers you on the inside, can I plead with you not to dismiss it just because your reaction to it is negative? Can I plead with you to say, you know what? I'm going to wrestle this one to the ground. Try to understand what it means and try to understand why God would say this is good for my life. So let's first look at this. This is important. You'll see I've underlined just a few words up here. No, go, go back, go back, go back. So you see wives, right? And this is important. It says, wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands. And I want you to notice not how wide this command is, but how narrow it is. And so this will be the next slide here, that the belief that all women should submit to all men is sexism, not scripture. So this scripture does not say, women, submit yourself to men. It does not say, if you are a woman, you should always submit yourself to a man. You should always allow a man to do whatever. You should always let a man have his way. It is not specifically saying that. That's not even what submission is. But the idea that women should submit themselves to men, that women are lesser, that women should always give way to men, that men should always be in charge and always have the final say and always get what they want, that's sexism. That's not scripture. And so again, what can really happen quickly with a verse like this is it can kind of turn into like men are better and men are stronger and men should win and men should lead. That's not what this is teaching at all. I want to be clear here. The only man a woman is called to submit herself to is the one she chooses to marry, that she chooses to marry. So women, you, there is a power put in your hand. 
The only man you are called to submit to scripturally, uh, you're going to submit to governments and different things, and there's, there's all that. But in this context of marriage, is the person that you decide to marry, that you decide, I am going to step into a covenant relationship with this individual. And so again, the scripture does not call all women to submit to all men, but it does tell wives to submit to their own husbands. It says in the verse, to your own husbands. And so what I want to do is I want to look at this word submit, and I want to talk about what it means and doesn't mean for just a moment. Because this is one of those words, remember the movie The Princess Bride? And there's like a lot of famous lines out of that. Maybe this was before your time, but maybe you grew up watching that at all. Uh, do you know, remember the guy who says this, Inigo Montoya says, uh, you keep using that word. I do not think it means what you think it means. <laughs> um, and, and, and I think for some people, they hear cement and, and they immediately jump to some conclusions about what that word means. But I don't think it means what you think it means. So let me just share four things that submission does not mean. Um, number one, submission does not mean a wife should tolerate abuse. Ever, 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 ever. Uh, a woman should not tolerate abuse. They're abusive and violent and drunk and high men who harm their wives and is an abomination before God. Women, you are under no obligation biblically to endure that, to sit under that, to be hurt, to be harmed financially, physically, emotionally, verbally, none of that. So when we say submit to your husbands, it does not mean whatever he does to you, whatever pain he inflicts, you just deal with that. That is not what this means. Number two, Submission does not mean a wife should not have an opinion. And so some people think submission means whatever the guy says goes, and so the wife is just kind of this dutiful wife who just always says, okay, anything you want, honey, anything you want, you just, whatever you say, I'll always go your direction. And as much as men might fantasize about that being the case, that is not what submission is. As much as a married man might wish his wife would do that, that's not actually what she's called to do. So submission is not not having an opinion. Submission does not mean a wife should have no authority. And in fact, the scriptures are really clear that the wife has authority over certain areas of her home, particularly over her children, over her home. There's actually a domain she has. She is not someone who has no authority. She is invested with authority. And then finally, submission does not mean a wife should comply with wickedness. Uh, and so if your husband is calling you to do something um, that is not moral, that is not ethical, that violates the laws of God, you are to obey God and not your husband. The submission talked about in scripture outside of our submission to God is never ultimate. It is never final. So if your husband says you should cheat on our taxes, if your husband says we should sell drugs and harm people, if your husband says we should lie, if your husband says we should cheat, the answer is no. You do not submit to wickedness. So that is what submission doesn't mean. There's a lot more things it doesn't mean, but it does not mean getting crushed. Here's actually the interesting thing about submission. The word in the Greek is actually the idea of to come under, which is not the way we think of submission. We think of submission like the more powerful person just crushes down the less powerful person, but that's not what the Bible says. Submission all throughout the Bible is choosing to come under another person's authority. And here's the way I want to describe it to you. Um, I want to give you actually a metaphor um, for what submission looks like, and I want to use the example of my own life. Um, so the scriptures are actually going to call a lot of people to submit to a lot of different people. Um, and one of the people I am called to submit to in my own life is the elders of Calvary Community Church. So all throughout the New Testament, people are called to submit to one another, submit to your elders, submit to your leaders, um, submit to your government, submit to your husbands. Submission is this thing all over the New Testament. And one of the things I just want to give you the example of is me and how I submit to the elders of Calvary Community Church. So I'm a pastor here on our staff. I report directly to Sean Thornton, who is our senior pastor, and he's an elder here at our church. And then there are a number of elder elders who work together. We have a plurality of elders here. And the ultimate and final authority in my life is Jesus. But then after Jesus, it is that elder board here at this church. 
They're the people who can correct me. They can rebuke me. They're the people who can pull me aside after a sermon and say, don't do that again. Um, They're the people who can redirect my life, who can challenge me. They are the people who have legitimate authority over me. And I want to talk about my relationship with them as I submit to the elders of Calvary. So number one, um, I am eager to listen. I'm eager to listen to them. So, so I, I get all sorts of feedback and all sorts of people talking to me about my sermons, my life, my ministry, all sorts of things. Some people have really good things to say. Sometimes it's like, ah, I don't know what I think. But when an elder comes to me and says, hey, I heard your sermon on Sunday, and I'd like to talk to you. Submitting to the elders means I'm not just like, fine, I'll listen. I'm eager to listen. Why? Because I respect them. I respect them, and because I respect them, I'm willing to listen. Even if I ultimately disagree, even if I'm not sure we should even be talking about this, I'm eager to listen. Number two, I'm empowered to speak. I'm empowered to speak. I submit to our elders, and yet I'm still empowered to speak. They're going to challenge me. They're going to talk to me. They're going to guide me. They're going to correct me. They're going to comfort me, and yet they give me space to speak. I can share what I thought, what I saw, what I heard, how I got to those conclusions. I'm empowered to speak. Then here's the third one. This might be the most important one for me. I'm willing to be swayed. That is part of what submission is. Submission is not anytime the person in authority says something, I just have to do it automatically because they say so. Submission is I just have this willingness and openness in my heart to be swayed. And what can often happen for people when they're under submission is they just kind of like they're just hardened in their heart and they're never going to change and they just stand on principle that they don't ever want to be wrong. But what I want to be is willing to be swayed. And that's the next one. I want to be open to being wrong. When it comes to our elders, when I'm corrected on theology or my preaching, when I'm corrected on something in my ministry, I want to be open to being wrong. I don't want to be the pastor who says, well, I'm never wrong, and I'm always going to fight back, and I'm always going to push back. Sometimes I just want to say, you know what, I messed up. I texted an elder once, pushing back on me, and I said, you know what, you're right, I fumbled the ball on that one. I said it wrong, I said it poorly, I should have cleaned that up, I really did a bad job there. I want to be open to being wrong. And then finally, I'm committed to unity, even when I would do it differently. That, like, that's what I do all the time. This might surprise you about the church. Um, the elders and pastors, like those of us who lead, um, things don't exactly go the way we want it to go all the time. Like There are things in this church that if it were just all about me and my preferences, we would do different. And yet, I'm committed to unity more than I'm committed to my own way. I'm committed to all of us being in this together more than I'm committed to it being exactly how Brian Howard wants it. So this is the important thing. I submit on a daily basis to the elders, to the leadership of Calvary Community Church, That doesn't make me less than, that doesn't make me unimportant, that doesn't make my life meaningless, that doesn't mean anything other than there are good, right authorities that God has put over all of our lives, and this is how it works for me. And I think that same kind of submission is the same way we think about what it means for wives to submit to husbands. So let's see this next slide, how a wife submits to her husband. She's eager to listen. Like women, I just think you're looking at a man, and when you marry him, there's got to be this, I respect him so much that I'm just willing to hear him out. The marriages that get in so much trouble are the marriages where one or the other just decides I'm not listening anymore. The next, empowered to speak. Again, you are going to marry a man and submit to him, and yet it doesn't mean you just sit around and say nothing, and whatever you say, honey, I'll just go with it. That is not what submission in marriage. You are empowered to speak up and share your mind and convince him and push him and challenge him. She's willing to be swayed. Uh, Again, where so many marriages get into trouble uh, is where someone just decides, I'm no longer going to be convinced by you. I'm no longer going to be persuaded, whether it's something really small about where you're going to dinner or something really big about where you're buying a house. She's open to being wrong. So there's this like joke we do in marriage, and a lot of marriage is funny. I just want you to know that. Like most of marriage is like two ridiculous, flawed, sinful human beings trying to figure out life. 
And that's why marriage jokes are so funny. Marriage jokes are so funny because men and women collide in this thing. It's like a total disaster, but it's also beautiful, and that makes funny things, right? But one of the jokes we try to tell, and it's not even really a joke. It's just like an observation that everyone just kind of takes to be true. Is people, like a dude will get married, and people will come alongside him and be like, you know what's going to happen now? Like, you're always wrong, and she's always right. And everyone goes, ha, ha, ha. I'm like, first off, that's not a joke. Second off, that's actually not true. And here's how I know that's not true. Ladies, can we just have like honest church moment right now? You know there's times you're wrong, right? Like you know in your heart of hearts there's times where you're like, I am wildly wrong on this, right? Because it's true of all of us. So I think it's actually insulting to women to be like, you're always right. It's like super patronizing, right? You're not always right. You're a human. Sometimes you're wrong. And marriage, is the submission is being willing to say, you know what? I was wrong on that one. And that's awesome. And then this, she's committed to unity even if she would do it different. And the worst marriages are the marriages where someone always has to have their way, where it always has to go their way. And so what does submission look like in marriage? It looks like these things. It looks like stepping into a relationship where you're not just trying to control everything and being in charge of everything. That is what submission looks like in the context of marriage. So tonight I said we're going to talk about five things to look for in a man. Ladies, I said the first thing was look for a man who loves Jesus more than you. Number two, look for a man you would willingly submit to. You would willingly submit to. Because i got to remind you, the power's in your hand. You don't have to marry anyone. At least in our culture, in our time, no one's forcing you to marry. And so you get to choose. And if you cannot imagine any kind of man in your life that you would possibly choose to submit to in that way, great, you don't have to. You can stay single. And you can actually be fully complete in Jesus and fully satisfied in who the Holy Spirit is and what he's doing in your life single. I really mean this. I really don't think marriage is like the ultimate end goal for everyone that everyone has to be at. And yet what will happen, I hope, is that ladies, that someday you would meet a man and go, you know what, submission sounds hard because you know what, it is. Almost all the commands of God are hard in scripture. And yet I hope you would meet a man someday that you go, I respect that man so much that I'd be willing to listen to him. I'd be willing to be corrected. I'd be willing to be challenged. I'd be willing to not always get my way because I respect him. I admire him. I love him. And I want to step into this relationship. It goes on this way in verse one. It says, so that, while you submit to your own husbands, so that if any of them do not believe the word, they will be won over without words by the behavior of their wives when they see the purity and the reverence of your lives. So I want you to notice the burden here in this text. The burden here in this text is that there are these men in their lives and these particular men that are being referenced, if any of them, so it's not saying all of them, but if anyone that don't happen to be Christians, there's actually this winning over that can happen. There's this turning, there's this influence women can have among men. And I think this is important, ladies, for you to understand. The massive influence you will have upon the man you choose to marry. If you choose to step into marriage, you will have an incredible influence on his life, so much so that it says he can be won over without words. And I think this is an important thing for you to consider as you head toward marriage, is the type of man who can be won over, the type of man who can be changed, the type of man who is willing to turn his life around, the type of man who is willing to admit he was wrong. Let me give you two questions you could ask about the man you're dating, if you're dating right now. Two questions to ask about someone you're interested in. Here's a good question. Here's a good question. Does he treat you right? That, that's like a really obvious question. Because if the answer is like, no, he treats me terribly. Um, stop, run, don't, no. Like, I, I don't know if you just need like a big brother to be like, no, uh, don't do that, right? But, but here's the problem. For most men that you're like, I'm dating him, and yeah, he treats me right, but sometimes, and I'm not talking about anything extreme, I'm not talking about abuse, I'm just like talking about sometimes he's insensitive in the way he responds. Sometimes he doesn't actually respect me. Sometimes he doesn't treat me like an equal partner. Sometimes this happens. Then what do we do? Because the problem is that sometimes it's true for every guy. 
So the good question is, does he treat you right? Here's a better question. Does he acknowledge, apologize, repent, and change when he doesn't? That's the better question. Because if you're looking for the guy who's always going to treat you right and never treats you wrong and never does anything wrong, you will be single for the rest of your life. But if you find a guy and you say he treats me right, well, what does he do? He acknowledges when he does it wrong. And acknowledging when you do something wrong isn't like, yeah, I guess maybe I'm not perfect. No one's perfect, right? That is not acknowledging you were wrong. If you got a guy who's like, oh, no, it's perfect. Like, that's like against the rules in our house to say. Because like, duh, of course no one's perfect. He acknowledges, you know what? I said that. It hurts you. It wounded you. I didn't say that. I didn't do that. I promised I'd take out the trash, but I didn't. I promised I'd show up and bring you lunch, but I failed to do it. I acknowledge it. You apologize. And an apology is not, well, I'm sorry if that hurt you, right? Again, not an apology, right? Like that is not an apology. An apology is I wounded you. I own that. That is my fault. And I'm sorry I did it. Repenting and changing. Like again, someone who's just always sorry and always beating themselves up and I'm the worst. I know I'm terrible. I'll always be this way. My father was this way and his father and his father's father was this way. Sorry, right? Like that is not it. Repentance and change is what you're actually after. Ladies, if you are dating a man and he is willing to admit he's wrong, he's willing to confess it, apologize, change, repent, you have found yourself a good one because any man can try to treat you right once in a while. The real question is this. What happens when you get to a place where you're not treated right. So you want to find that man. So here's the number three thing you're looking for. Look for a man who's willing to repent and change. Look for a man who's willing to change. Look for a man who's willing to repent. Look for a man who's willing to say, I'm sorry, because that actually shows they have the kind of gospel humility within them that recognizes I'm not perfect. I've not done everything right. And yet I'm willing to turn. I'm willing to change. And I'm willing to apologize. The text goes on this way in verse three. It says, your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as elaborate hairstyles or the wearing of gold or jewelry or fine clothes. Rather, it should be that of your inner self and the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. Now, this seems like a bizarre turn. You're like marriage, husbands, repentance, clothes. Like, what? what? Like, it just seems like out of nowhere, but it's actually this really beautiful part of the text. Because again, look at the burden here. The burden here is Peter is describing the type of wife who thinks she needs to put on elaborate hairstyles, jewelry, and fine clothes. But like she's the type of person who feels like she has to present and perform before this man in order to be loved by him. And imagine this, like imagine, ladies, you get asked on a first date and you go on the first date. Now, here's my guess on the first date. On the first date, like you're thinking through what you're wearing, right? You're doing your makeup, you're doing your hair, you have a hundred outfits you chose not to wear, and you're working with your girlfriends on trying to figure out which one you're gonna wear. Like, there's a lot of thought and presentation. That's probably a good, healthy, right thing, right? But then like as the relationship progresses, like the goal is actually it becomes more intimate in such a way that you don't feel like you have to do that. So on the first date, that makes sense. At year five, if you still feel like you have to do that, every time you see him, that's a problem. Because what it should progress to at some point is you're wearing the same sweatpants for three days and everyone's cool with it, right? Like that's what it becomes. Why? What actually starts to happen in a relationship is that that physical appearance, that like performance that we put on starts to fade away. Like as a relationship matures, outward beauty should matter less and the inward beauty should matter more. That's maturity in a relationship. Now, here's what I'm not saying. I am not saying, ladies, find you a guy who doesn't care how you look at all. Because that's just not honest. Like, like men, that matters. They care. But what I am saying is this, that as a relationship progresses, he should be able to see you with the eyes that says, I love you for who you are, not for who you are pretending to be. 
That's what should start to happen as a relationship progresses. That's what's so beautiful. That's why like the first date you wear nice clothes, then you're wearing sweats. It's like in the beginning when I was dating my wife, I would make like complicated reservations. We would go to seven different places on a date. And now I look to her, I'm like, you want to order nachos and watch a show? She's like, yeah, right? And that's what we do. Like that's date night now. Why? Because we've progressed from like this performance and this show we're putting on to just like, I love you for you. I love that you're my nacho buddy. Like I love that we get to do that. So what are you looking for in a man? Number four, look for a man who sees you the way God sees you. Look for a man who looks at you for who you are and your beauty and your goodness and your talent and the inner invading beauty that it talks about in this text. Look for a man you don't have to perform for. Look for a man you don't have to pretend for. Look for a man who doesn't need you to always be happy. Look for a man who doesn't need you to always be on. Look for a man who doesn't need you to feel a certain way or look a certain way or pretend or act a certain way. Look for a man who loves you for who you are. Now, this isn't like the classic advice of like, yeah, he doesn't love every part of me, get out of here. Some of the parts of you are terrible. They're selfish and they're prideful and they're angry and they're filled with jealousy. So there should be parts of you that you're refining. But what you're looking for is a man who looks at you and says, you know what? You don't have to perform. You don't have to pretend. I'm in with this journey with you no matter what, because I love you the way God loves you. It goes on this way and we'll look at our fifth and final one for the ladies. It says, for this is the way the holy women of the past put their hope in God, used to adorn themselves. They submitted themselves to their own husbands, like Sarah, who obeyed Abraham and called her Lord. You are her daughters if you do what is right, and you do not give way to fear. And so um, Abraham is indeed going to be called Lord by Sarah. And yet it's kind of in like a comical moment where uh, she thinks she's going to be pregnant. And she's like, okay, Lord, right? Like, it's kind of like this, like she, she honors him. She respects him, but, but she's not fully sure what to do. This. So I don't think this is the command, like, like, ladies, you should call your husband Lord. Like, I don't think that's what this is commanding. But, but what I do think we can often miss because that word Lord can really throw us is actually what's being described in verse five and six here. Notice what it talks about. It talks about holy women, like set apart women. What are they doing? They're putting their hope in God. In verse six, they're doing what is right. They're not giving way to fear. You know what's happening is that somehow through the marriage process, they're actually becoming more like Jesus. They're becoming more like God. And this is the fifth and final one, ladies, to look for a man whose life will help make you holy. Like this is the goal and aim of marriage. Most people think the goal and aim of marriage is happiness. And so what they want is someone who's gonna make them happy all the time. But here's what I need to know. I'm gonna break this dream. There is no man in this world who can make you happy all the time. There is no man even the best man, the most awesome men, uh, the incredible husbands, the world-class ones cannot make you happy all the time. If you aim for happiness, you will not get it. If you aim for holiness, if you aim for we are going to become as much like Jesus as we possibly can in this relationship, it will actually create friction. There will actually be hard moments. But you know what's beautiful? Aim for holiness. You'll probably get something deeply like happiness thrown in there. Like, this is what you are after. You are after a man that you look at and you go, you know what? Me and him together be, could be more like Jesus than me and him apart. That's what you're after. You're after the type of man who's going to make you like one of these holy women of the past, like one of these women who was made more like Jesus. It is a beautiful thing to see a woman who has been married 40, 50 years, to see how God has shaped her through her marriage. Marriage and parenting will probably be the most sanctifying things you ever do in your life. It will make you holy. It will expose your selfishness. It will show you your pride. It will bring out your anger. It will show everything about you that is amplified. But marriage is also the most sanctifying thing you can step into. It will make you more like Jesus. So ladies, this isn't the only five things. But let me tell you, if you do find those five things, that's worth celebrating. That's worth looking into. That's worth being very attracted to and very interested in and very up for exploring where that goes. Now listen, it may be he has these five things and that doesn't work out. 
But these are five things worth looking for. Gentlemen, we're going to get to you in a second, but these are five things worth being. These are five things worth looking at, becoming, thinking about. If I said some stuff tonight and you're like, actually, I don't ever apologize for anything. Actually, um, I don't really talk about women the way God sees them. Actually, uh, I'm not really that man who's really respectful. Like, if that's not you, then you need to think about these things because that is the type of woman or the type of man that women ought to be looking for, uh, according to this text. So, uh, ladies, that's you tonight. Uh, fellows, let me speak to you, um, and we'll, we'll roll through. This is actually only one verse. The ladies get like six verses here. The guys just get one, uh, but it's a pretty packed and intense verse. So let's look at this. Five things to look for in a woman. I'm going to go with this again. Look for a woman who loves Jesus more than she loves you. Look for that woman. Find her. You know why? It's not just because you want to marry a Christian. Let me focus on the back half of this part because I focused on the first part, who loves Jesus and the, for the ladies. Fellas, let me talk about it this way. Um, you do not want a wife who loves you more than she loves Jesus because if you find a wife who loves you more than she loves Jesus, what will happen is by default, you will become her idol, you will become her God. And let me tell you, fellas, you are terrible gods. You will never satisfy the deepest desires of her heart. And if she looks to you and loves you more than she loves the Lord, both of you will be miserable. Find a woman who loves Jesus so wildly that you know you will always come in second place. That is a beautiful thing to seek after. Find that woman. It goes on here in verse seven. It says, husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives. And I love that phrase because there's gonna be all sorts of big theology in Paul's letter about how you're supposed to love your life like Christ loved the church. You're loving your wife in that way. We'll get to that. But at first, Peter, he's just really practical. He's like, you should be considerate when you live with your wives. And considerate simply means what it says. You should consider her and think about her. It's like for me, when I was a bachelor, um, when I was living with J.D. Lasky, uh, we would just leave dishes in the sink for weeks. Um, and it was fine because it was like we would get to them. And sometimes, this is the low moment of bachelors, when you have to wash dishes before you cook um, because it's still there. It's kind of gross. And I was just doing that, but it never bothered me. And then I got married and suddenly it was like, could you please clean up your mess here? And I'm like, excuse me? Um, and, and what am I doing now? I'm considering her, right? Or, or when you're a single dude, maybe you're just like, oh, I go out with the boys, we go on trips, we do all these things. And she's like, hey, um, I'm kind of more like, let's hang inside and let's like stay in tonight. And you know what you have to do as a husband? You consider her. See, here's the great danger for so many men. It happens for women too. But men, I think a lot of you, when you're looking for a woman, you're actually not looking for a woman. You're looking for a woman who acts just like a man does. It doesn't make sense. Like we actually want this woman to act just like you do. You're like, if she could be just like me and like all the same things I like and have the same proclivities I do and enjoy the same things and act in the same way. But one of the most beautiful things about marriage is you're marrying someone who is like you, but not like you. That's the beautiful thing about marriage. And some of you want to marry someone who is an identical clone to you. And I'm telling you, that is not the path to happiness. The path to happiness is not, how can I marry someone who enjoys all the same things I do so I'll never have to change? What actually happens in marriage is so beautiful. You consider someone else's needs. You consider someone else's wants. So if you're looking at someone, you're like, yeah, I really like him. I really like her. But we're kind of different in some areas. That's like a really beautiful thing to celebrate. That's actually a really beautiful part. And husbands, you are called to be considerate as you live with your wives. Um, this is number two to look for. Look for a woman you're willing to consider above yourself. A woman who you think of more than you think of you. Uh, a woman who you consider more than you. you think about her needs. You wake up in the morning and you're actually like, oh, I'm kind of excited to help her. Like I remember when this happened for me, summer of 2010, um, I met who would eventually become my wife. Um, and we were serving together as interns here at Calvary. Uh, and all summer we're serving together. And like there was like a little bit of flirting, but what was really happening was she was going to study abroad for a year in Switzerland. And I was like career minded. And I was like, I don't want to meet a woman. Um, and so I'm like rolling through the summer and I'll never forget what happened. There was a day, it was like the early July, um, she got sick. 
And it wasn't like devastatingly sick. It was like she was home with a cold. And I remember coming into work and learning she was sick. And then this thought occurred to me that stopped me in my tracks. I was like, she's sick. I wonder if she needs, I wonder if I could bring anything for, oh no, right? Like I had this moment where I was like, I'm thinking about her. Like I'm so used to thinking about me and here I am thinking about her. But actually that moment is the moment you know. Because husbands, if you want a fruitful marriage, that's what you should do for your entire life. Your wife needs something, and before she even asks, you're thinking about it, you're considering it. That's what Peter is calling us to. Marry the type of person who you go, you know what? I just want to think about them. I want to think about their needs. I want to think about what they have. That's what Peter tells us. He goes on this way again in verse 7. He says, and treat them with respect as the weaker partner. Treat them with respect as the weaker partner. Now, now we live in a wild culture with men and women where this verse is seen as like wildly offensive. Because it's like, no, women are strong and men aren't necessarily strong, all that kind of stuff. We just get like so wrapped up in this. But here's just what I'm going to be incredibly clear on. This verse is not referring to like moral fortitude, character, any of those issues whatsoever. This verse is simply pointing out the overwhelmingly obvious thing that has been true for all of human history, that men are physically stronger than women. Men are physically stronger than women. And listen, I know this is true. This is true even if your sister can bench press 350 pounds, right? This is true even if your scrawny little brother can't even spell gym, okay, right? This is true. And and, and I know there's always exceptions, right? Anytime we talk about men and women, there are exceptions. But here's what's so important, that men generally, by and large, are physically stronger than men. And this is something women have understood throughout all of history. And here's why this matters. This isn't just some sort of dig or random comment. Peter is deeply aware of this, that women are in more physical danger than men, And that is never more true than in marriage. That women in the home are in more physical danger than men. And men, you need to be aware of that. You need to be aware that women are in physical danger, that there is a threat to their lives, a threat to their safety, a threat to their well-being that you do not live with in the same way that women do. And to be considerate of women is to be considerate not just of her as a woman, but of her as the weaker vessel of the one who could actually be harmed in ways you can't. So men, you know what one of your number one priorities, if you're going to marry a woman is? That respecting your wife as the weaker partner begins with making her feel safe. She should feel physically safe around you. She should feel physically safe. She should feel emotionally safe. She should feel safe enough to disagree with you without you blowing your handle. She should feel safe enough to make a mistake and not be afraid that you're going to scream at her or harm her. She should feel financially safe around you. That doesn't mean you're rich. It just means that you're not using money to manipulate and control the relationship, which happens many, many times a day. She should be comfortable disagreeing with you. Physical abuse has no place. Financial abuse, emotional abuse, yelling and threats, all of this has no place. Your job, men, is to make sure the physical safety of your wife, the emotional safety of your wife, is something you pay attention to. Again, when a woman steps into a marriage relationship, men, you don't think about this, but it is a huge risk for her. She may be harmed, she may be wounded, and she's stepping out in faith. And men, your job is to make her feel safe in that relationship. Here's number three. Look for a woman whose well-being you would put above your own. Look for a woman whose well-being you would put above your own, who you would say, her safety, her well-being, I need to make sure she's okay. And listen, there are many things in marriage that you can divide up however you want. In our house, I do all the dishes, right? That's my job. I'm always the dishes guy. I love doing the dishes. It's like cathartic for me. I'm the dishes guy, right? And we divide up how we're going to do it. You're going to do this and I'm going to do this. Here's something that should never be divided up. The physical safety of the family, 
right? So like the other night, Danny and I were in bed um, and we heard a noise um, downstairs. So our kids are in bed, we're in bed, we hear a noise downstairs. I'm like, that's weird. And so I went down to check it out. Turns out it was nothing, probably a trash can, no big deal, right? So imagine I go back to bed and imagine tonight we hear another noise and I hear it downstairs and we turn to each other, go, what was that? And then I look at her and I'm like, hey, would you mind going? I went last time. So would you mind going and checking out the noise? (laughs) You laugh because you know I'd be a terrible husband, right? Because however we want to divide things up, there's something inside of you that knows that I need to go defend my wife. And even if she is a black belt in karate, I am not worth my salt as a husband if I am not dead on the floor before she has to fight and defend our family. And so here's what we have to do as men. We just have to say in every possible way, physically, emotionally, financially, my job is to make sure my wife feels safe. My job is to step out in that. We can't control everything. But if you look at a woman and say, you know what? Her well-being is more important to me than my own. You are on track and you're in place to be the kind of godly biblical husband this word calls you to be. And then it says in verse seven, it says that they are heirs with you in the gracious gift of life, which is just like a Bible way of saying like God loves you and God loves her and you get to receive eternal life together and you're on this journey together and you get to be a part of all of it, the highs and the lows, the best parts and the worst parts, you get to be part of all of it. This is actually just like the Bible's way of saying that marriage is actually the two of you receiving and experiencing the blessing of God and the hardest moments of your life and doing it together. Like, let me put it this way, that choosing your spouse is choosing the person that you will laugh and cry with most for the rest of your life. That's who you're choosing in a spouse. Like, choosing a spouse is not simply choosing, like, who's the person who makes me feel good or who's the person I'm most attracted to or who's the person who I just have most fun with. Like, all that's nice. But the real question is this. For the next 30, 40, 50 years of your life, you will have amazing moments where you will smile, where you will laugh, where you will be on top of the mountain. And you will have devastating moments that you did not see coming. Moments where your life is rocked, where people get sick, where it goes downhill quickly. And that's the person you're going to be with. So five things to look for in a woman. Number four, look for a woman who you're committed to be with for better or for worse. And the old marriage vows, what does it say? For better or for worse, till death do us part. I want to be with that woman on my worst day. When the worst thing happens to me, that's the woman I want to run to. When the best thing happens to me, that's the woman I want to call and tell. When the most wonderful conversations happen and when the most devastating conversations happen, whatever happens in my life, that's the person I want to be with. That's the person I want to share with in this gracious gift of life. That is the kind of woman you want to look for. That is the kind of woman you want to marry. And then in verse seven, here's the final words. And these are so intense. It says, so that nothing will hinder your prayers. So in other words, be considerate of your wife as a weaker partner, sharing with you in the gracious gift of life. Why? So that nothing will hinder your prayers. And here's what I've looked for. All over the scriptures, I've looked for another verse that tells me, if you don't do this, God's not listening. And this is the most clear and direct one I know of. And you know what's wild? It's not equal. Women, there's not a thing that says, wives, if you don't do this, God won't hear your prayers. But somehow, God looks at the men and says, if you are not operating properly in marriage, if you are treating your wife inconsiderately, if you are being a jerk, if you are being abusive, I'm not listening to you until you get that right first. Men, this is a weight that sits on our shoulders. And if you are not comfortable bearing that weight, please stay single. For the sake of the woman you might marry, for the sake of your life, for the sake of your soul, for the sake of your relationship with God. God is not playing around when it comes to marriage because here's what God believes marriage is. Marriage isn't just two people who love each other who just want to get tax benefits and live together. That's not what marriage is. Marriage is actually a portrait and a picture of something so much more beautiful that marriage is the relationship. The relationship in marriage is meant to represent Christ and his church. It's meant to be a parable, a mini drama. Me and my wife, the way we love each other is meant to represent for me how Christ loves his church and for her, it's how the church loves Jesus. And so here's what God is laying on my shoulders. 
and on any man in this room who chooses to get married. If you treat your wife poorly, you are reflecting poorly on the nature and character of God. The reason he says, I will not hear your prayers is because he goes, if you're going to present me in such a way that is abusive and unkind and uncompassionate and impatient and rough and angry, if you're going to present me in that kind of way, you got to deal with that before you come deal with me. That's what we're called to, men. So what do we want to do? We want to be the type of people, um, number five, who are going to look for a woman who would love, who you will love. Uh, I'm sorry, let me go back to this. Um, no, throw number five up there. We're going to skip some slides. Look for a woman who you will love like Christ loved his church. That's what you need to do. You need to look for a woman that you will love like Christ loved his church. And how did Christ love his church? He laid his life down for him. He laid his life down for the church. That is the kind of woman you are looking for. You are looking for the type of woman who you go, you know what, I don't know what the future holds, but whatever happens, I would die for you. Uh, actually, the slide I was gonna put up there before, we'll put it up there now, is that the scriptures do call women to submit to their husbands, but they call husbands to die for their wives. And gentlemen, that is the weight that sits on your shoulders. That is what you are called to do. And that is what was on my mind today when I woke up. See, today is April 20th uh, of 2023. Um, and I know 420 has all sorts of other connotations. Uh, but for me and my wife, it's a really special day because 13 years ago today, um, we met. Um, I was interviewing for a job. Oh, uh, that wasn't the moment we met. I'm going to get to that in a second. <laughs> I met her. I was like, let's get married. No, 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 hold on. No. So, no, no, it's actually the day we met. So 2010, we met. Uh, and then in 2012, um, she, the night before, I actually dropped off a dress and a little note that said, hey, wear this tomorrow. We're going on a photo shoot. And so my best buddy, J.D. Lasky, and I, uh, we started doing a photo shoot all around the area. And then this is a park near her house, Wildwood Park, if you know that, over in Thousand Oaks. Uh, so what happened is I brought her over to the park. Uh, and I walked her in. Her sister had set up this big bouquet and this big kind of thing going on. Uh, and then you'll see the next, uh, the next photo here. Uh, I got down on one knee. And I asked the question, and the question was simply, will you marry me? Um, and so I got down on one knee, and I asked that question. And then you can see her response in the next question. She said yes, and she got the heel pop in, uh, which was really important to her. Uh, and so I always say that was the best conversation I ever had. And then uh, my favorite picture from this whole photo shoot is this next one here. Um, I, I looked over at JD, and I was like, we did it. Um, we were very excited. And then uh, I rejoiced for all the world to see, which was uh, this last one, which is the first and not the last time I have embarrassed my wife. Um, so I'm rejoicing in this and it was awesome. But, but there's one photo um, in this whole lineup of, of kind of how this night went that I want to show you as we close the sermon tonight. And, and here's simply the photo. It's this one right here. Um, when we walked up to that table, at that point, it's no surprise uh, what was going to happen in that moment. Like uh, there's a Bible and the candles and flowers, but all she's looking at is that little blue box. And she's like, I, I know what that is, right? Um, but, but before we got to the little blue box, I opened up my Bible and I turned to Ephesians chapter five. And I read to her the passage that said husbands are to love their wives like Christ loved the church, laying their life down for her. And I said, Danny, my entire life, I've known exactly what I've wanted in marriage. I didn't know you were the person. I just knew I was looking for someone worth dying for, someone worth living my entire life for them, someone worth living your entire life so that I could love them in the same way that Christ loved the church. I said, Danny, you are that person. That is what I want for you for the rest of my life. So before I got down on me, before I proposed, before any of the celebrations or posting on social media or seeing our family and friends, I needed to make clear that that was exactly what I was looking for. And she was the one I was looking for. Why? Because it's easier to find what you want when you know what you're looking for. It is easier to find what you want when you know what you're looking for. When you know you are looking for a woman who you are willing to love like Christ loved the church. Gentlemen, when you set your eyes on that, it is easier to find what you want when you know what you're looking for. We'll put that on screen. And, and again, for all of us tonight, that's the principle for us. 
And you need to know this. You need to live like this is true. I don't know what your criteria is, but my fear for some of you is you have no criteria. And so you just kind of aimlessly look around and you're just kind of hoping love happens. But what I want you to do is be so clear on the type of man. And listen, he could be tall, he could be short, he could be wealthy, he could be an artist, right? He could be anything, right? Like he could could be like in shape, he could be formally in shape, like whatever is that, right? Like he can be all of that, but you know the type of guy you're looking for and they're out there. But I think the problem for so many is you don't actually have that clarify in your mind. And so a bunch of guys have actually crossed your path. But because you haven't had the movie meet cute cute moment, you, you actually just like blow right past it. And what I want for you so deeply is to know what you're looking for. So it becomes easier to find. Because here's what you need to know. That the person you marry, who you choose to marry, will shape your faith. And it'll shape your future. In fact, outside of receiving Jesus, this is the most important decision you will ever make. And so here's the invitation for you tonight. The invitation is for you to get clear on this one simple question. Who are you looking for? Who are you looking for? And my hope tonight is that something has been stirred inside of you that says, you know what, I need to get some clarity on that. You know what, I actually haven't been looking for that. Or maybe if you're in a relationship, a dating relationship, um, there were some moments tonight where you either went, yes, that's him. Yeah, that's her. And maybe you actually have that conversation tonight to say, you know what he was talking about there? That's you, and I love that about you. Hey, that's you, and I love that, that that's part of your character. Here's a little scarier. This is where I'm going to meddle with your life. Maybe you were listening to that and going, that's not my boyfriend. That's not my girlfriend. I don't think that'll ever be my girlfriend. I don't think my boyfriend could ever be like that. And then you got to do some business before the Lord. Because here's the question, who are you looking for? Do you know what kind of guy you're looking for? And you know what the beautiful thing is? Uh, And this might be the most encouraging word tonight. I bet you there are men and women who are in the room who fit all those criteria tonight. Like there are some of you who are single, ready to mingle. This is you. You're totally there. And I know, like I get that me saying this like creates this environment after tonight where everyone's like, hey, you know, like, you know, like I get it. Like I just get it. And that's awesome. And it's wonderful. And it's beautiful because you know what? Like there's actually something profoundly spiritual about romance and profoundly spiritual about marriage. And if anyone has ever convinced you that you desiring marriage makes you like desperate or weird, they're wrong. Because the best thing that ever happened in my life is the decision to marry my wife. And marriage isn't perfect, and marriage isn't always easy, and marriage is sometimes difficult, and I told you it is refining, it is sanctifying, but it is good. And for you to have clarity, here's the type of guy I'm looking for, here's the type of woman I'm looking for, and when I find them, man, it'll work out or not, we'll see how it goes, you know, there's no perfection, no guarantees in life. But what you want to know is have absolute clarity on this question, to know who you're looking for, because who you marry will shape your faith, and it will shape your future. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thanks for tonight. Thanks for your word. Uh, And thanks for the opportunity to look for um, some things in Scripture um, that maybe we haven't considered before, maybe we haven't thought about, maybe we haven't processed fully. Uh, I pray for any young men and women in this room who are single, and they're lonely, and they're aching, and this has actually stirred up just a desire in them. I pray that you would find uh, a peace within them, that you would give a peace within them, and that they would find satisfaction in you, and that that would actually set them up if you have marriage for them. I pray for those who are in a relationship right now that they would assess the relationship, not just on how they feel and what goes on in the inside, but on the criteria of your word of whether this marriage could actually work. I pray for those who are engaged and ready to get married, planning a wedding. I pray that they would continue to be sanctified and made holy um, into the type of person who's ready to be married. Uh, And I do pray for anyone listening tonight who is married. I pray that they would love their spouse in the way the scriptures lay it out. I pray that they would do the type of biblical marriage that God lays before us. And I pray that they would find great joy, great purpose, and great peace in that. And so God, we offer before you our romantic lives, our desires, everything inside of us. We bring it before you. And we ask that you would meet us in the midst of that. We pray this in Christ's name and all God's people said, amen.